0: Morning, everybody. If you would turn your Bibles to Titus Chapter Two. Titus Chapter Two. When I was in college, one time I was back home. And um, we were, we were, my parents had had some people over and we were just singing worship songs. People had gotten song books and we were just singing songs. So my little brother was probably four or five at the time, I guess. I don't know. So the way we did it is we just went around and everybody got to pick a song that they liked and then we'd sing it. And, but the deal was whenever you picked the song, you had to say why you liked it. So why, why this song was important to you kind of to share and so uh, it came around to my brother, and it was pretty much at the end. Everybody else already picked. He was the little guy there, so I guess he just got skipped. So I was like, oh, hey, what, what do you want, Andrew? So he picked Amazing Grace, right, which may have been because he probably only knew three or four songs off the, off the top of his dome anyways, but that was the one he picked, which is a great one. And so, well, okay, well, you got to say, why do you like this one, Andrew? And he sat there for a second. And he said, well, if it wasn't for God's grace, we wouldn't have anything. So I like this song. That's pretty good. It's a pretty good reason. And that's right. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, the Spirit says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, all people, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then Paul says to Titus, who will say more about in just a second, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It's funny, you wouldn't think verses 11 through 14, Paul would need that little bonus uh, exhortation there, right? What this shows to me is, is that, considering and understanding and appreciating and seeing our lives through the grace of God is of utmost importance. It's the fundamental reality of our lives as human beings is that God's grace has appeared. And without that, nothing else matters. Nothing else is real. Nothing else is apart from the grace of God. I'd like us to take some time to consider this text and uh, and the meaning of it. Just set the stage just a little bit. You guys know First and Second Timothy and Titus is our reading this month. We're trying to hit those books every week. Everybody's, you know, uh, Candace has been especially putting some things in the chat this week. Uh, so if you've been off your Bible reading a little bit lately, jump back on in. These are short little books. You can sit up, get them in one quick sitting, ten minutes or less, and get a lot of good stuff out of them. The book of Titus was written to a young man uh, named Titus, who was one of Paul's uh, proteges, I guess you could say. Paul says he had sent him to Crete to set in order the things that remained. Specifically, he wanted him to appoint elders, shepherds in every congregation, Uh, not just so it'd be like, okay, we got some official groups with leadership, but he wanted people who were godly, who were self-controlled, who were ready to know how to live in this present age in such a way that would help others to do the same. He also really specifically says, hey, I want you to appoint those elders. He says this in Titus chapter one, uh, so that there will be people who will protect the saints from outside forces who may come in with deceptive ideas that will destroy people's lives. And that was especially important in Crete because Paul says Crete was a messed up place. He actually says some things that would make us kind of clutch our pearls, honestly, if uh, he said that kind of stuff about a, a people group or a nationality. He says some really hard stuff, but he also says, hey, their own poets say it. They say this stuff about them, that that's a rotten, rotten place. And it was actually true. Kind of interesting, a couple hundred years before Jesus came to earth, uh, Crete was ruled, they were like these little city states, and eventually it broke out into a civil war. And the civil war lasted for nearly a century, where they were just fighting against each other on this little island off the coast of Greece. Well, that kind of environment where society had kind of degraded to just... uh, chaos, really, and warlords fighting against each other and pitting uh, people, the citizens against one another, made it a haven for pirates, like real pirates. Like I don't know about Jack Sparrow pirates, but pirates were just crawling all over Crete, coming through and doing all this kind of stuff. And they became kind of a proud, strong people in in their own little way. Uh, So much so that actually um, about a century, a little less than a century before Jesus came on the scene. The Romans actually said, Listen, we got to take care of business. We got to grab Crete because they're just doing their own thing over there. We've taken over the mainland. We got to grab this little island. And they sent their navy, and the Cretans beat them back and they had to run away. Now, the Romans came back a couple more years and they blew them away. But you get the point. They were a strong, proud people and had been for quite some time. Now, by the time that Titus was living and he had gotten sent there, it had kind of become like a retirement community for people, Uh, former Roman soldiers. Even quite a number of Jewish people had ended up in Crete. But what had happened in this society is it wasn't a particularly godly or humble or uh, great kind of place. Doesn't matter. People of God still need to be there. And there are people who still need to hear the gospel there to be brought out of the darkness of this world and into the light of the kingdom of God. But you can imagine it would be tough. Do you have to imagine how tough it is to live in a world where, to use Paul's words, there are, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, rebellious people, full of empty talk. That's not just in Crete. That's anywhere and everywhere. And somehow God's people have to stay grounded and not get caught up in that stuff. Every day we're fighting that battle to not get caught up in the culture that's been cultivated through the history of the world around us, but rather to stay grounded in the glory of God. How do we do that? Titus 2, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. This word appeared is actually really interesting. I don't know about you, but when I, when I hear the word appeared in, in English, I think of, okay, I was hiding, and then, ha-ha, I appeared. Then I came out. Right. And that, that is what the word means sometimes. But actually, the Greek word here that's translated appeared is where we get our word epiphany, epiphany. And it's only used a couple of other times in the New Testament besides right here in the book of Titus. And the other times are in Luke chapter 1 and in Acts chapter 27. And in both of those contexts, one poetically and the other actually talking about what's going on in nature, it's talking about the epiphany or the appearance of a star or the sun. Now, the sun and stars, they're not in hiding and then, hey, we're here. That's not actually how it works. The appearance of the sun uh, and whenever it appears, it actually makes everything appear. Or whenever you're thinking about the stars, it's the guiding light that you lock onto to navigate through your night and to be able to get to your desired destination. Here when it says the grace of God has appeared, it doesn't simply mean that grace was kind of hidden and then God (laughs) unveiled it. He did do that. And there are scriptures that speak to that. But actually, this is saying something more. This is saying that the grace of God is our north star. The grace of God isn't just something that we see, but by it, we see everything. We have this great epiphany by the grace of God because the grace of God has appeared. There's three epiphanies I want us to think about that the grace of God uh, provides us, or maybe to put it in a different way, three uh, ways of seeing the world that the grace of God is crucial for. Number one, the grace of God makes us see our past history, our personal history in a clearer and truer way. The grace of God gives us an epiphany on our current reality. And the grace of God gives us clarity on what will appear for our future destiny. So the grace of God, it makes us see our personal history more clearly, more truly. It makes us understand our current reality and it makes us see our future destiny. So let's look at these things uh, one by one. So first of all, when I say uh, the grace of God makes us see our personal history, it's right there in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The fact that God has brought salvation implies that we needed saving. And it tells us that we are savable or we have been savable. There's two great mistakes that every human being makes when thinking about their personal history. There's probably more than two, but I'm just going to present at least two. One is that I was pretty good before the grace of God. I was pretty good. I wasn't out here doing some of the stuff that some of these other folks are doing. And so I feel pretty good about myself. And I appreciate God coming. I had, I did have some sins. Don't get me wrong. I had some stuff that was messed up. And I appreciate God coming through for that. But in general, I was a pretty good person. That's false. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He kind of breaks his thought. We're going to come to the break in a second. But listen to what he says. He says, For we also just like the people around us who we may look at and say, ooh, gross, look how bad they are. He says, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Do you hear what the Spirit says? You wasn't that good of a person. You may think you were, and other people may have told you that you were. But the epiphany of the grace of God when it comes to your personal history is you weren't that good a person. I don't care if you grew up on pews. I don't care if you're out here running around doing whatever kind of foolishness in the world. Whatever it was, you weren't that good. None of us were. And we don't we don't need to think anything otherwise. The fact that God had to send his son to die on the cross as the divine cosmic penalty for our sins tells us that we weren't that good. Chapter three, verse three is real for us. But now there's an the opposite problem that we can run into when reflecting on our personal history some of us may struggle with thinking i was pretty good by the way the way this sounds is when you say you know before i came to christ i mean i was already kind of almost a christian in some way no you weren't you were lost and condemned you were going to hell okay don't try to sugarcoat it you were bad you before you came to christ you were okay you get the point uh, But that's a problem but there's another problem that's just as as damaging and just as devastating to us it's for us to sit back and say i think i was too bad i don't think i'm savable I think I was just too corrupted. I was too dirty. I was too whatever. You get what I'm saying? So one person says, I was pretty good. The other person says, I'm a total lost cause. There's no hope for me. You don't understand my personal history. And you start running through your list of sins. Well, I would refer you to chapter three, verse three. That's a pretty dirty, bad list of sins. And yet listen to what verse four says. But, but when the kindness of God, our savior, and his love for mankind appeared. Same word. He saved us. Now, it wasn't on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, so don't think that this is like whether or not you you met, You know, there was like a minimum criteria that Jesus said, I'll come save people as long as they're good enough. No, none of your salvation has anything to do with the deeds you've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that's a great word, that regeneration, there's this, Uh, your life needed to be generated out of something and you couldn't generate it. You couldn't. There was nothing going on with you. But he, by his mercy, brought about this regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You hear how this addresses the second person's issue of thinking, man, I'm just too dirty. I'm too bad. I'm too lost. I'm too hopeless. Not true. If the cross shows us how bad our sin really was, if the appearing of the grace of God shines light on our personal and shows oh, you were really bad, this is the lengths God had to go to to deal with your sin, then doesn't it also show us the security and the surety that God does indeed save? If God was willing to invest this much, do you think God was gonna do that on, I don't know, Some it's probably gonna work for some people. It's probably not enough for some people. Are you kidding me? God wouldn't have done this if he didn't believe and know that you were savable that your life was salvable, that you weren't a lost cause. Your personal history is not one of being good enough, almost, just thankfully Jesus came through for you, nor is your personal history one that says you're a lost cause, God couldn't love you, God couldn't have you. The grace of God has appeared, and the epiphany for us in that is that all that stuff's old news. Whatever good stuff you may have done, it's old news in the light of the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. And whatever bad stuff you may have been, the darkness there has been driven away by the light of the grace of God. That has appeared. That's the truth about our personal history. So whatever you think about yourself, however nice of a person you think you used to be, or however evil of a person you used to be, see it through the grace of God. Stop seeing it through yourself. The grace of God has appeared to give us a new view on our personal history. What about our current reality? I'll go back to our our primary text here in uh, verse 12. There's this great thing here because like, man, that is good. Hallelujah. Salvation. We're good but that's not the end of the story because that salvation that God has given us isn't just meant to lie there and make us feel good about ourselves every day. We should feel good about ourselves because of God's rich mercy and kindness and grace and love. But there's some teaching that goes along with that. He says here that the grace of God has instruct, it is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly In this present age, you know, outside of Christ, all we really have as a North star, the only thing we have to illuminate the world and to show us how we ought to go is our own personal desires. If you don't have Jesus Christ in your life, there's really no other guiding light. You do whatever you can to maximize your pleasure, minimize your pain, smooth out the path as best you think you can through your life, make as much money, be as successful, get as many friends, whatever it is. And that's kind of your North star. That's the sun that is illuminated the landscape of your life, and that gives you some sort of direction. Paul says, hey, that's apart from the grace of God. But because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we aren't just following the desires of the flesh. We aren't just following the, the impulses that are put on us by the stimuli of the world around us. That's not what we follow anymore. We see the world. We have a new North Star. We have a new light that has illumined our world to show us the way that we ought to go. And that's in the grace of God. Um, there's so much to say about this and uh, I'm not even gonna try to do it all. But I will just refer to you to something here. In chapter two, well, notice verse 11. What's the first word of verse 11 before this talk about the grace of God? You notice that? For, right? Somebody have something like that, for or because. In other words, he didn't just start a brand new idea here. This section about the grace of God is actually a follow-up to something else. There was something that Paul was saying that someone might say, why is that the case? Well, here's why. Because the grace of God has appeared. Well, look at the beginning in chapter two and verse one and notice what it is that Paul's been talking about. Chapter two, verse one. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Right, what are those things? Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be re- You notice Paul wrote older women. He didn't say older women in their presence. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if you was bold enough to say it to them to their face, but he wrote about it. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious, gossips, nor uh, enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. And in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny all ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present stage. You see, actually, the point of this whole thing about the grace of God. This is the foundation for the lifestyle that Christians are supposed to lead. This text right here in Titus 2 is a great one. I love this one because it does. You know your category. You know if you're a young man or an old man or a young woman or an old woman. You know if you're a person working or you're whatever it may be. You can categorize yourself here. And there's a little self-check on your behavior. And what that is is what it means to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. That means you're not pilfering. means you're not um, uh, getting drunk with too much wine. It means all the things that he mentions here. To live righteously and godly in this present age is to be somebody who's sensible, who's pure, who's loving. All the kinds of stuff that he talks about here. The grace of God helps us see that our current reality cannot and should not be dictated by whatever our desires are or whatever values the world may tell us. We have a standard of conduct and character that God has given us that's held up by His grace. The text that Clifflet read for us uh, at the beginning of the service from Ephesians chapter two says largely the same thing, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves; it's the gift of God, and it's not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. And then he goes on and talks about all that. Our current reality is that we don't live by the impulses of our flesh or the values of the world around us. We live by the standards that God has laid out. That's not the only thing that the grace of God informs about our current reality, though. Because ultimately, we all behave in certain ways because of the identity that we embrace, right? And y'all know this. Some of y'all... You on your job, you're just very serious people, always looking nice, got it together. And then you get with your family and you act like a crazy person on the weekend. I mean, not a bad kind of crazy, but I'm just saying you are not that professional, mature kind of person because, whatever, like sibling order or relationships or your parents, you are a wild person in different settings. Why is that? Well, because when you're on the job, you've, you take on an identity. I mean, you're just like Batman. You put on the cape and the cowl, and you're like, this is who I am now. I'm going to act this way. And then you get with your family, and you act like somebody totally different because there's a new identity that you have. I'm not saying you're being a hypocrite or anything like that. It's just the context dictates that. Here's the deal, y'all. If we're going to live up to the character that the grace of God demands of us, we have to understand the identity that we have by the grace of God. The reason why we keep on living like folks in the world is sometimes we think we are folks in the world. And that's not the truth. Look at what he says about our current reality in verse 14. It says uh, he talks about uh, our God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us, verse 14, to redeem us from every lawless deed. That's that character stuff. We got to have a new character in our current reality in the grace of God. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Do you think about yourself in that way? that every day when you're walking around, your life is not your own. You do not belong to you anymore. You are a possession of someone else. You belong to Jesus Christ. And by the way, this is not the only one. You know, there are many scriptures where Jesus speaks to this, that what you are now is you've been bought with the blood of Christ by the grace of God. And I will say that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We may feel like, hey, nobody gets to, you know, dictate my reality and Tell me who I am. Well, how's it been going trying to define your own identity, to find yourself out here in this world, trying to make your job make you matter, trying to make whatever people group you belong to matter, trying to make whatever your political affiliations or your intelligence or your accomplishments, and you try to formulate some kind of sense of identity or maybe we could say belonging, that I belong to this group of people or this class of person or this sort of thing. It doesn't work too good, does it? And I'll tell you, It is tiring to go out there and to try to manufacture your own identity, to try to make your own reality matter and mean something, by the grace of God, we're freed from that. We've been bought. We've been redeemed from all that stuff to belong to him, to be his possession. And that's what informs our character. That's what dictates the way we live because I know I belong to Jesus Christ. I'm his possession. And so really while I'm out here, whatever expectations he may give to me, like in Titus 2, 1 through 10, that makes perfect. Well, it doesn't even have to make perfect sense. Actually, it doesn't matter. He said, this is the way I need to live. So I'm going to go out there and live that way to the best of my ability, because I know my current reality is not formulated by my career accomplishments or my amount of money or my good looks or my bad looks or whatever it is they, I may have. Jesus Christ has bought me by his grace. And now there's this great epiphany that I belong to him. And that informs my conduct, not just my conduct, though, but also the whole purpose behind my existence, Notice what he says here in the rest of verse 14. He's purified for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Verse 12 speaks to that our current reality means we have to restrain ourselves from some things. We have to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live godly and righteously in this present age. The end of verse 14 speaks to the positive motion that there also has to be. There are things we have to restrain ourselves from as people who belong to Christ, There's also things that we have to pursue and chase after in Christ. Notice how this is actually a big theme, this idea of being zealous for, uh, some translators say for doing good or for good or good deeds. Chapter three and verse one, he says, remind them. And by the way, you wonder, okay, how can I do some good deeds? What are some good deeds I can do? You ready? You're not going to like it. All right, here we go. Chapter three, verse one. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Did you think that was what doing good deeds was going to be like? Being obedient to authorities, submitting yourself, to, and whoever that may be, governmental authorities, authorities on the job, authorities, in, whatever it may be. Here's how you do good deeds. Submit yourself to the authorities. Oh, by the way, I'm just obeying what Paul said because this comes right after 2.15. Remind them of these things. Uh, what does it say? Speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So I'm just going for it right here, okay? If we're going to do good deeds... We've got to do what chapter three, verse one says. That's not all, of course. Chapter three, verse two, it gets harder. These good deeds we do means that we malign no one. This is a great Bible word because nobody really knows what malign means. You should be like, yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna malign anyone. I'm not gonna look up that word and figure out what it means so I don't have to worry about it. But y'all know what malign means. No speaking evil, no trash talking people, no being like that. Now, listen, out there in the world, the people who have not had an epiphany in their current reality by the grace of God, they live in the darkness and they are rebellious. That's what Crete was all about. Remember, Pirate Island and all that stuff? They're going to malign people. They're going to do all this stuff, but not you because you've got a new reality. You are a possession of Jesus Christ. You have a new code of conduct that you live by, and you have a new purpose. You know, the reason why people in the world are rebellious and disrespectful and and malign others and all that sort of thing is because my purpose is to assert myself, to gain whatever I can to uh, to be powerful. Not us. We believe in the power of grace. And so we're willing to submit ourselves to be quiet, even when we know something's not not quite right. We're going to be people who the text goes on to say uh, are peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And I'll remind you, the all men that Paul describes in Crete were evil beasts, lazy gluttons, liars, rebellious folk. We're going to be considerable, considerate to those kind of people. Do you do that? Those are the good deeds that we're talking about. Being conduits of God's grace, that our mission every day is not to go out to see how I can just get through the day and get some of mine or accomplish some other goal that maybe seems even righteous. No, what I'm doing out there is to go and be a beacon of God's grace to do good deeds that would demonstrate the grace of God in me. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. After he goes on this great passage we read earlier, talking about the grace of God that's appeared, verse 8, it says, This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for people. That's what we're trying to do. That's our mission. That's our current reality. How can we do good for others? And he says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. If Paul was right in 2021, he'd say, I exhort you to watch out for everything in social media and news media and every discussion about everything, because all these folks are arguing about everything. Watch out for that stuff. Don't do it. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned, because he doesn't understand the grace of God. That's the point. He hasn't had that epiphany of what his life is really all about now, who he is and how he's supposed to live. He then goes on, still talking about this good deed stuff. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, so nothing is lacking for them. I'll just say we know from Paul's other writings, uh, a couple of these names as people who were people that would preach and teach along with Paul that he would send out in different places to take the gospel. That helps us understand verse 14. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. What's the pressing need, Paul? What's the pressing need that we've got to make sure to accomplish? Well, he just said, help out these folks who are running around preaching and teaching to different places. We need to help them out as they go on their way. And actually, if you go back to chapter two, all that code of conduct, did you notice the purpose statements all throughout the life we're supposed to live now that we have this new current reality in the grace of God? Look at chapter two and verse um, five. The last line of it. Why do we need to be living all this great way? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. What about the end of verse 8? How young men are supposed to live and all that? Is this is important so that the opponent, well, opponent to what? The opponent to the gospel will have nothing, will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Why is it that workers need to work the way they're supposed to? Verse 10, the last line, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Our mission is to make God's name known in the world because we've had the epiphany of how God's taken our past history and totally rewritten it by his grace. He's reorganized, reformatted everything about the way we live our lives and why we live our lives, how we identify our lives. He's changed it all. And now our mission is to do whatever we can to make that grace known to more and more people. The grace of God has been this life-changing life changing Epiphany for us. And everybody else needs that too. Think about all the good stuff that you have in Jesus Christ. Now we live to make that known to others. Because the grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation to us. Giving us a brand new view of our past history. And it's instructed us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. It's changed our current reality. And other people need that too. Because one day this whole thing is going to get wrapped up. Verse 13 of chapter 2. In the midst of all this, Paul says that as we see our past history in a different way, in a new light through the grace of God, as we see our current reality through the guiding light of the grace of God, we see a different perspective, a more hopeful perspective, on our future destiny by the grace of God. We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus when you think about your future what does it look like what do you think about when you look at the future you think about yourself um, old with all your debts paid off or none of your debts paid off friends and family around or maybe you're afraid there'll be no friends and family there at all when you look forward, do you see a cracked, ruined, dystopian future of the world around you? Or do you look out the window of that future self and see sunshine and rainbows and butterflies? Yeah, you know, I, I don't it, all that sort of personal disposition, whether you're a sort of negative Nancy or you're just an eternal optimist, you're going to see your future in the world uh, through those lights. Really, now because of the grace of God, we've got to see the future in a totally different way. Whether or not we even notice who's around that bed as we get ready to go to the other side, or whether or not we notice how contented we are, happy we are, how many debts we've got left, or whatever when we reach the end of the line, it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. Either way, you could have the worst End to life imaginable. And when glory breaks through, you'll laugh about it. you forget about it. On the other hand, you could have everything that somebody could ever want in this world whenever you reach the end of the line. If you haven't received the grace of God, then all that glory that you had here will laugh you to scorn at what you've lost. The grace of God has appeared to give us an epiphany of what the future is really all about or what it could be all about for each and every one of us. We are looking for the blessed hope and appearing, and this one actually is the, hey, I'm here, of God our Savior, Jesus Christ. The way Paul said it in another place is he said, you know, I'm convinced that whenever we get there, it's going to be like the glory of, of Jesus' return and the new life will have him. It's going to be like a weight. It'll be so heavy, so substantial, so meaningful that it'll just crush into nothing all the sufferings of this present life, so much so that they're not even worth being compared with the glory that's to be revealed when Jesus comes back. Whenever he comes back and you start apologizing for your past history and he says, hey, 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 We already did all that. That's over. Why are you talking about that? Whenever he starts showing you how all the things that you did through your life, stuff that you didn't think mattered, stuff that you thought was pretty difficult at times, were the ways that he was weaving a new reality for you, not just in this life, but in the one to come. Whenever he looks you in the face and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in. Whenever he says to the father, This one. This is one of ours. Bring him home. All the other stuff's not going to matter, y'all. All All the good stuff, all the bad stuff, it's not going to matter. Because whatever light has appeared to us through the grace of God, the light on that day will drown it all out. It'll certainly drown out all the darkness. But the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ when we see him will be the brightest epiphany we've ever had, that it was all worth it. It was all worth it. Whatever it may have cost us, whatever we may have had to be or to do, it was worth it by the grace of God.